This episode contains sensitive content that may not be appropriate for listeners of all ages. Listener discretion is advised. Join us for Mountainland Physical Therapy's second annual Pelvic Health Summit, May 4th through 6th in Park City, Utah. Led by board-certified experts, the Pelvic Health Summit will give participants a deeper look into the common issues regarding women, men, and transgender health, as well as innovative treatment plans. Participants will earn up to 14.5 CEU credits through lectures and hands-on labs, all while networking with other professionals in the field of pelvic health. Buy your tickets today at summit.mlp com forward slash public health that's summit.mlpt.com forward slash public health we'll see you there From Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Mountainland Physical Therapy's Pelvic Health Podcast. I am your host, Madison Slan. Thank you for listening. Today's guest is Dr. Audrey Rutherford. She received her doctorate of medicine and went on to successfully complete her dermatology residency at UT Southwestern Dallas, one of the few dermatology programs consistently rated one of the top five training institutions in the country. Dr. Rutherford is dedicated to the prevention, diagnosis, and management of both common and complex dermatologic conditions. She specializes in the diagnosis and treatment of skin cancer, melasma, rosacea, acne, psoriasis, women's dermatologic conditions, warts, and also complex medical dermatologic conditions such as cutaneous, rudimentologic conditions, and blistering disorders. Dr. Rutherford's research during medical training focused on vulvovaginal dermatosis, such as lichen sclerosis, plasma cell vulvitis, and lichen planus. She is an active member of several international societies dedicated to studying and treating these devastating dermatologic conditions, such as the International Society for the Vulvovaginal Disease and the International Society of the Study of Women's Sexual Health. Dr. Rutherford is also an active member of the American Academy of Dermatology. Dr. Rutherford grew up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas. She obtained her undergraduate degree from the University of Texas at Austin, earned her Bachelor of Business Administration from the renowned Macomb School of Business, and graduated as an acclaimed college scholar. She is currently practicing in the Salt Lake City area and is accepting new patients. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited. Awesome. So for our listeners, today we're going to be discussing different dermatology conditions that affect the vulvar region. Um, Our topics are going to include the description of the overall condition, the causes, symptoms, what the tissues actually look like and change, treatment options, and the multidisciplinary approach to working within this patient population. So to begin, Dr. Rutherford, would you give us kind of an overall introduction into like the lichenoid conditions, and then we can dive deep into kind of those three main conditions that affect the female vulvar region. Definitely. Um, So dermatology specifically is one of those medical specialties that likes to use a lot of complex terminology that can be confusing for patients as well as other medical providers. Um, And so I kind of want to, as we're talking, kind of explain some of the differences between the lingo that I'm using. So um, as as I use it all, it doesn't get too confusing. So First, I'll start off with the lichen diseases. So there's a lot of lichen diseases that affect the vulva. And so patients will come in and we're like, oh, yeah, I've been diagnosed with lichen, blah, blah, blah. And that can be um, 
problematic because there's so many things that can affect uh, the vulvar region. So, um, so lichen essentially is a diagnostic term um, that can be used to describe both how a disease looks clinically, but then also how it looks histologically if you were to take a tissue sample of it. And essentially, it is uh, important to know the second term when it comes to lichen to actually have real good diagnostic specificity. Um, and so that's something that I just wanted to point out before we get started on this, because um, these are very distinct different diseases and disease processes that require different treatments, have different, you know, patient populations that are involved. And um, it, it does need to have a little bit of specificity when we're talking about that. So the lichen sclerosis and the lichen planus and the lichen simplex chronicus are all lichens, but only two of them are primary conditions, which means that they arise just in and of themselves. There's not necessarily a quote unquote trigger that starts it. Um, so lichen sclerosis and lichen planus um, being the primary conditions that I kind of want to talk about at the beginning. And then lichen simplex chronicus or LSC is a, what we call a secondary condition, which means it arises because of some other trigger or some other condition. Um, and so it's not in and of itself, just a diagnosis. It's also a diagnosis that makes us think there's something behind this as well. Um, and so I, I'd like to talk about that kind of later on. Absolutely. And I think kind of the irony is like, it's called lichen, but we don't, we don't like them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I would say I like starting with those two, because from a pelvic PT standpoint, those are what we're going to probably see the most of, as well as, of course, like contact dermatitis as well. Exactly. So yeah, maybe let's dive into kind of those first ones that you discussed and kind of like both the etiology and like what patients see, what, what PTs might see, what, what is happening at the cellular level, and then kind of all those descriptions and treatment options as well. Definitely. So I'll start off with um, vulvar lichen sclerosis. It's uh, believed to be an autoimmune condition at this point, um, and it can affect both the genital and the non-genital skin. Typically, it affects the vulva for women, but it can also affect the genitalia for men as well. Um, my specialty more focuses on, on women, so I'm going to kind of highlight on that today. But um, And I do just want to note that I respect the fact that um, the terminology that I use sometimes can be limited. I understand that have, owning a vulva and being a woman is not created equal, and same thing with, you know, having a penis and, and male, those are, I recognize the limitation in my, in my language here. And I just want to acknowledge that and um, just know that I'm meaning all of the respect, even with my language limitations. <laughs> um, but so I'll focus on lichen sclerosis of the vulva. Again, autoimmune condition. Um, we don't really know what the trigger is or why certain people are more prone to it, but we do know that up to 80% of people have an auto uh, antibody against um, a part of the extracellular membrane. And there's a misconception that it predominantly affects postmenopausal women, but that's just factually incorrect. It can affect um, prepubescent children and um, it can affect women, you know, in their teens, twenties, thirties and beyond. Um, so that's something that I, I definitely try to get out to the public that it's not necessarily a postmenopausal condition. It can affect anyone. It typically arises with a symptom of itch. So that's usually the first thing that patients come and explain. And I've been dealing with this itch for six months, five years, 10 years, 20 years. Um, it, it can affect people for forever. And, and just because of the, the intimate nature of it and the, the stigmatization of our society, people don't like to come in and talk to their providers about it. So, um, and it's also difficult because not only do dermatologists treat it, and it's also something that gynecologists deal with as well. So patients are often like, well, who do I go talk to about this? Do I need to see a gynecologist? Well, my gynecologist thought it was 
yeast, but I'm still itchy and so on and so forth. And so it can be, it can be really challenging for patients to know where to go, know who to turn to. And so they suffer with this for a really long time. So some, again, same thing with the stigmatization and the issues that go along with this. Um, a lot of women don't look at their vulvas. And so I, I hate to say this, but some of the first times that I see women and I make this diagnosis, they've already had a lot of skin changes that are showing chronic disease, um, with a lot of the long-term sequela that comes from this condition, um, that they, patients don't even realize, and they don't see the progression of the disease because they're not looking. So they don't know. Originally, the tech, like the textbook definition of what it looks like is these white, shiny plaques. And plaques is a dermatologic term that essentially means a raised surface that you can feel or a surface that you can feel. It can be both raised and lower, depending on if you're a splitter or a lumper. But um, essentially, it just means something that you can feel has texture to it. That is the classic presentation of it. Um, but a lot of times the earlier presentations of lichen sclerosis can be really nonspecific with just generalized erythema, which essentially means redness that can, can blanch. So when you press on it, it turns white and then it, the redness comes back. Um, and it can have some scale, some tissue paper-like textures, often, often a term that we use a lot in, in lichen sclerosis. And it typically affects the uh, labia minora, which is the inner lip the inner labial sulcus, sometimes on the medial aspect of the labia majora. It does affect the clitoral hood and then it, the perineum and around the anus. So it makes what we call like a figure of eight pattern, just circling the female genitalia and then around the anus as well. The problem with having this go untreated for a really long time um, is that it can turn into a sclerosing condition, um, which means that scarring can occur, which leads to architectural changes in the normal architecture of the vulva. Um, and that can be really devastating for women just because not only does it affect um, the actual normal function of the vulva, so things such as obviously sexual pleasure and urinary problems, as well as um, problems with defecation, all of those things come into play just physically, but there's also a huge psychological burden that comes along with having your normal female architecture, vulvar architecture change over time. There's a huge uh, mental health component to this as well um, that I don't want to go unnoted because it can be a huge part of the, of the psychological process for this for women. Um, so in regards to treatment, uh, we do have excellent treatments. And I'm going to talk about treatments first before I get into the scarier stuff, just because I want to lead with hope. Um, so the gold standard treatment for lichen sclerosis is um, a high potency or ultra potent topical steroid. And this can be scary for people because lay people and um, non-dermatologic folk and people who don't deal with this condition on a day in and day out basis and your, and your pharmacists and things like that can say, oh, well, you'd never want to use topical steroids on the genitals. That's, you don't put it there. It's too strong. It's bad. And that is absolutely false in this condition. Um, if you have lichen sclerosis, it is, it is, it is not only safe, but it is safer than not treating the vulva with topical steroids because untreated lichen sclerosis can progress into skin cancer, what we would call intraepithelial um, neoplasia or squamous cell carcinoma, which are types of skin cancers that affect the, the vulvar region. But the good news is, is if, if you get treatment, you're using topical steroids and you're using them correctly, you can prevent 
both the scarring and architectural changes that can occur with lichen sclerosis, as well as prevent skin cancer from occurring. So there is a light at the end of the tunnel, um, and it just does take um, a lot of patient education, as well as diligence on providers' part to reiterate and reinforce the safety and importance of appropriate treatment and uh, long-term follow-up to prevent scarring and skin cancers as well. Absolutely. I know it does. I see a lot of these patients come in the door and they, like you said, they have no idea what's going on. And from a pelvic floor standpoint, having the understanding of what these conditions look like and the treatments and knowing your providers in your area and who you should be referring these patients to is very important. I see these patients come in, not always for pelvic pain. They might be coming in for incontinence. And then I'm I'm seeing this and noting that this is happening. And sometimes people assume incontinence is because of pelvic weakness. And it, and it can honestly be a cause from a lichen condition because we lose some of that elasticity in the muscles. And so if we don't have full motion within the muscles, our strength is going to be diminished as well. And so I think really understanding what these conditions look like for our pelvic floor therapists out there. So you know what you're looking at and when to refer out is super important. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm kind of briefly mentioned this earlier, but, you know, the urinary symptoms and also constipation being one, the constipation is a, a common finding that we see in, in kids with lichen sclerosis because it affects the perianal region. And so that's something that, you know, people often get referred to their gastroenterologist or whatnot for evaluation of why are they constipated? And it's like, because they have lichen sclerosis, but it's, you know, not necessarily first nature to, to look at the anus whenever your kid has you know, constipation. So just, it, it can be a hard condition to diagnose and treat. And it's hard for patients to figure out where to go. So. Absolutely. Similar to that is, you know, people are, patients are scared of it. They've tried a bunch of things by the time I'm seeing people, or by the time like a vulvar specialist is seeing patients, they've usually run the gamut of a ton of different providers and they've tried a ton of different things. They've had a ton of different diagnoses, which is understandable. It's a hard, it's, it's, it's hard, but what I want to emphasize is getting the appropriate treatment in the appropriate location, um, with the appropriate education. So, you know, patients will come in and are like, Oh, I've already tried a topical steroid. And it's like, okay, well, which one was it? What was the vehicle? What was the percentage? Um, and how did you use it? Because ointments are going to be in general stronger than the same prescription in a cream in the same prescription in a lotion. And, Typically, ointments are a little bit less irritating to the skin when it's raw and inflamed than, say, a gel or a lotion or a cream can be. Um, and so it can be also confusing because if you're given hydrocortisone, you know, it's 1% or 2.5% or something like that. And then the next provider gives you clobetazole 0.05%. The 2.5% patients think is going to be stronger than the 0.05% because the number is bigger, right? That totally logically makes sense. But unfortunately, the, the medication um, is actually the actual more important factor for it. Um, so that's another point of um, question and concern that patients often have. And so you want to make sure that you have the appropriate strength and the appropriate potency of steroid, the appropriate percentage or composition within whatever vehicle you're using. You want to have the appropriate vehicle that you're using it on. Um, so whether it be the ointments or creams. Um, again, for the vulva, I almost strictly do ointments um, just because if people are inflamed and irritated, ointments can be your, your best friend. Um, and then you also want to educate how to use it, how to use it, how to use it. 
lichen sclerosis patients, if they're using their topical steroids correct, tend to do excellently without any of the side effects that typically come along with topical steroids. The patients that I see that have any of the changes that occur with topical steroids and like the side effects, things such as atrophy, quote unquote, thinning of the skin, things like that, which are, they sound scary. Um, but usually that only occurs in the setting of incorrect topical steroid usage. When a patient will first come in and they're like, oh, well, I've tried that. It didn't work for me. Or I tried that and it didn't, you know, whatever. I have them show me actually on their body using just plain Vaseline that I keep in the clinic with me. Show me how you use this and just hand them the bottle, you know, wash their hands, whatnot. Um, show me how much you're using. Where are you putting it? Give them the mirror. And by and large, women who are not having improvement or are not having relief or are having things like steroid atrophy or problems like that tend to be using their steroid either too much of it or in the incorrect location. Um, so that gives a good opportunity for, you know, patient education and explaining them, you know, how much to use, where to place it, how frequently to use it, things like that. Um, and so I'll, I'll take a picture, um, you know, obviously with the, with the patient's consent, I'll take a picture, show it to them on the iPad. I can print it out for them and say, and also have them, you know, be looking with a mirror and say, you know, here's where your disease is active. You can see the skin changes. And I point it out for them. Um, and then here's how much you want to use. Most women for the vulva only need a uh, lentil sized amount. Um, so like less than a chocolate chip almost. Um, and that should cover the entire vulva for most, for most women. Um, with that instruction, most people do very well. And most people don't have the side effects um, of the thinning of the skin and things like that. I think that's super important. I know a lot of providers will hand, just kind of write the prescription out and kind of hand it to the patient and go. And like from a pelvic standpoint, it's similar to us handing a patient a dilator and being like, good luck. Exactly. You You have to demonstrate, you have to show people how to use it, how to do it properly so that the management's effective. Exactly. And it's, and it's not, it's not intuitive. You know, it's, it's, it's something that we take for granted as providers that everyone should quote unquote know how to do, you know, a lot of these women aren't, have never seen their vulva before. Like when you say, put it on your vulva, that, that doesn't mean anything to them for a lot of patients. Um, I think it's changing because of, you know, excellent education and passionate people like yourself, you know, things are getting better. Um, but there is still a huge, huge patient population of women who don't know the terminology and have never seen their own vulvas. And so it does take a lot of patient education. I think you can do, do a lot to help people just by taking the time for that patient education. And I'll, I'll just give a shout out to, to my mentor, Melissa Moscar at UT Southwestern in, in Dallas. She's um, the gynderm guru that I have learned all of this from. So um, these are not my own, but I have seen how impactful they can be. And it's something that I've incorporated incorporated into my practice that I'll, I'll never give up because it can be so incredibly helpful. Yeah. I think with medication, sometimes, especially topicals, people think more is better. And it sounds like in this condition, that's not exactly true. Yeah. And, and for a lot of things in, in, dermatology overall more isn't better it's it's using the appropriate quantities in the appropriate location and so you know that's that's a whole other soapbox i can get on but you know patient education in dermatology overall is can be game changer regardless regardless of the medicine and regardless of which part of your body you're treating but it's it's particularly important for for the vulvar dermatoses 
So, and what are the common steroids um, that you use for um, this condition? Because I normally see clobetazole. So when I see that on a medication list, I'm already kind of thinking that they have this condition prior to even coming in. And then I'm expecting to see a little bit of architectural changes and maybe some skin dysfunction going on. But what are maybe some of the other main ones out there? So pelvic PT is known. They see maybe a medication list coming in um, on an intake form that they should keep their eyes open to understand that that might be a comorbidity with whatever pelvic dysfunction they're treating. Definitely. So clobetazole absolutely is one of the more common ones. It is the 0.5% ointment is what I typically like to prescribe. Um, Insurance comes sometimes can play an issue uh, if we have to do, if we have to finagle and whatnot. There's other high potency topical steroids that I I can start out patients with things like augmented beta methazone ointment um, or diperlene is the, I think the brand name. Um, Halibatazole is another one. Those are all more of the higher strength topical steroids. Some of the mid-tier strength topical steroids are things like triamcinolone 0.1% ointment or mimetazone. Um, And I I point that out as the 0.1% ointment because the triamcinolone 0.025% is drops down a class because it's not as potent um, and it isn't going to be as effective than the triamcinolone 0.1% ointment. So, so those are kind of the more mid-tier and then getting even to the lower tier things like hydrocortisone, uh, 2.5% ointment or the desinide um, ointments as well um, are more of the low tier uh, class. So those are better for things that are, are less, the, the hydrocortisone and the desinide are better for conditions that don't require such intense um, inflammatory control, such as lichen lichen sclerosis needs that intense inflammatory control in order to prevent the scarring, in order to improve the itch, in order to improve the pain, and in order to avoid that skin cancer risk. And so you're right, we hit it really hard at the beginning. So we really want to get all of the inflammation under control, and we really want to get it under control quickly, um, because Additionally, that helps instill in the patient that, you know, we know what we're talking about. We can help you. We can get help you quickly and really just try to slam it hard with high potency topical steroids. So I'll usually do that um, with clobetazole or another ultra potent high potency topical steroid um, once or twice a day for at least six weeks, if not three months, depending on when I can see them back. Um, and then decrease it down to either once a day or every other day, depending on how they look and how their symptoms are. And then after that, I can kind of wean patients down. Some patients prefer to use a lower potency or mid potency topical steroid daily because it's easier for them to remember. Um, others are like, no, I already have a ton of this medicine. I'd rather just use it less frequently um, and, and kind of wean off that way. So at, once patients are controlled in that first few months, um, then we kind of have the discussion of what they prefer and how they prefer to to go about that titration. Um, I do want to also emphasize that this is a condition that unfortunately doesn't get quote unquote cured, you know, maybe 10 to 15% of patients can have remission and have it be gone, but that is a very few and far between and not something that I would ever feel comfortable telling a patient like, we've got you under control. We've got you cured. You never have to deal with this again. That is just, um, unfortunately not something that is, is supported by the evidence. So, um, patients tend to, um, be a little bit concerned with that, that we can't promise them a cure, but we can get things under control. Um, and with lifelong support, both by somebody who cares about them and their condition and wants to, to tackle this together, whether it be myself, another 
you know, dermatologist, another OBGYN or PCP, whoever they trust to help them along with this, they just need to expect that this is going to be a lifelong process, a lifelong relationship um, with lifelong, most likely lifelong topical steroid usage to prevent recurrences and to prevent um, reignition of the, the disease in order to make it um, not progress to scarring and, and cancer. I think that's really important to note because yeah, these people, I've had a patient say, well, it's it's thinning. So then I have to use estrogen after. And so I actually did think, oh, it doesn't sound right. And referred her to go see a dermatologist because it sounds like she probably either wasn't applying it properly or maybe it was too high of a dose for her at this point. And so still being able to manage those patients, they come in the door and they they think they've got it under control and, and maybe they don't. And so being aware of you know what the thinning also might look like so that we know when to refer them back as well for kind of the opposite. They're over-treating it or improperly treating treating it. Absolutely. So with lichen sclerosis, um, the more active the disease, the more there's that whitish hue, there's more, there's that induration, um, which is like the hardness. Um, and then, and the more there's, um, the agglutination and the scarring that you can see patients often also have symptoms, but I do also want to emphasize that a lot of patients don't. So if you've ever been diagnosed with lichen sclerosis, even if you're asymptomatic, it's important for either the the patient themselves or their gynecologist or someone to look and to keep note of changes of the vulva because it can be completely asymptomatic and still be progressing. But things that um, would trigger more concerns for atrophy would be um, prominence of the vessels. So, you know, seeing, feeling like you're seeing the veins more easily. Um, And then um, striae would be something that would be more of a long-term consequence. Um, Typically I, I don't, and striae, I mean like stretch marks pretty much. Um, it's, it's something that typically is only seen, um, on more of the hair bearing or the groin. Um, and like I said, that's more if people are, uh, patients are using it incorrectly because it's, it's very difficult to cause stria or, or that severe atrophy in, in the actual, um, non-hair bearing portions of the, of the vulva. And you mentioned the estrogen. Um, and I will say that, you know, there is, some of the older literature looked into a lot of, you know, does estrogen actually help with lichen sclerosis and things like that? And you'll see patients who are on estrogen and on clobetazole. And it's like, well, why are they, you know, who put this person on, which dermatologist put them on estrogen whenever it's lichen sclerosis? I just want to, diseases don't act in isolation. So it's, it's, it's important to determine your treatment based on what disease process you're actually trying to treat. But just because someone has lichen sclerosis does not mean that they do not also have genitourinary syndrome and menopause. And so they might need to have both of those treatment options on, on board, but they're treating different problems in the same vulva. So... Yep, absolutely. And that was definitely this patient who had Mm -hmm. kind of some just overall sclerosis kind of, she was that patient that it started at a very, very young age and it was undiagnosed. And, um, you know, in her thirties is when she finally saw a dermatologist and got on the clobetazole. But by that point, her, her overall sclerosis then transitioned to stenosis, which has been a pretty tough condition to be working on with. Yeah, that is heartbreaking. And I, I, it just makes me sick to my stomach. And I wish that no person ever would have to get to that point because we can, if, you know, if we can catch it and if we can treat it, we can stop that scarring and we can stop that progression. And the evidence supports that topical steroids can, can halt the progression and can halt the scarring. So that just breaks my heart. And I tell patients all the time when I'm referring to dermatology, I set that expectation off at the very beginning. This is not uh, it's not going to come back. 
it's going to be prevention for progression. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Awesome. Well, now I think we're good to maybe move on to the different planus condition, the lichen planus condition. Yeah. Okay. So lichen planus, it's a, another skin condition. Um, lichen planus type likes to affect kind of all aspects of the body, but I'll, I'll definitely try to focus more on, uh, the vulvovaginal area just for relevance sake. Um, it's also a inflammatory condition that we don't fully understand the etiology of. We don't really know why it gets triggered or who gets triggered in or what really the problem is, but it results in this, um, inflammatory reaction at the junction between the epidermis, which is the top layer of the skin and the dermis, which is the, um, second to the most top layer of skin, but above the, the fat and, uh, vessels, things like that. Um, and so you have this inflammatory reaction, um, that results in, um, a bunch of different presentations on the skin. It's, it's one of our mimickers, I'd say, um, the classic description of lichen planus is purple, uh, polygonal flat top plaques, um, that can affect common locations being like the wrist, the shins, things like that. Um, but there is a list a mile long of all the different variants of lichen planus. Um, so you can have things like hypertrophic, meaning really, really thick, itchy plaques. You can have erosive, which means you are still having that same type of reaction, but instead of having a thickened plaque, you're having the loss of that top layer of the epidermis. And that erosive um, lichen planus is, is one of the more common presentations for the vulvovaginal area. And I say vulvovaginal area when I'm speaking of lichen planus, rather than when I'm talking about lichen sclerosis, that typically affects more of the vulva itself. Lichen planus, unfortunately, does like to track up the vaginal canal itself. And that can be a helpful diagnostic clue when you're looking and you're seeing some erosion, some erythema, some nonspecific findings like, well, is it tracking up the actual vaginal canal? If so, that's probably more likely lichen planus than lichen sclerosis. And that can be helpful too whenever the, if you take a biopsy, if there's a lichenoid uh, reaction pattern on the histology, but you know, which one is that? Is that going to be lichen sclerosis or is that going to be lichen planus? Using your clinical clues, such as the location can be really helpful. Also with patients with lichen planus, I look in their mouth um, because another very, very common location for erosive lichen planus can be in the oral mucosa. And so it can definitely be very, very um, helpful in, in narrowing down really what's going on. Some of the findings of that within the mucosal surface are going to be like white, lacy, um, reticular patches um, that you can see typically on the, the buccal mucosa. You can see it on the gingiva as well. And then within the actual vulva, and um, you see it more at the introitus um, or near the vestibule. Um, and then again, tracking kind of more up into the, the vaginal canal as well. The concern with it tracking into the vaginal canal, of course, is not only stenosis, but complete obliteration of the vaginal canal itself, which can cause complications. Again, obviously with the uh, urinary tract, you can have infections, things like that, that just become, it just becomes a nightmare. So um, definitely something to not forget about. Um, and it makes it definitely a multidisciplinary condition. Um, 
dermatologist, gynecologist, urologist, pelvic floor, physical therapist, pain medicine, everybody's got to get their hands in there just to help. Lichen planus also tends to not be as responsive to topical steroids as lichen sclerosis, which is another differentiating fact. And so it often requires intravaginal suppositories of steroids, topical steroids, injections of steroids, and some patients even require um, oral or systemic medications to try to get it under control. I would think too, from like a pelvic standpoint, we're going to see more of these patients and they're going to be generally more of our pain population, whereas yes. sclerosis could be either for sure. Definitely. Yeah. Lichen planus tends to be a little in, in the vulva specifically tends to be a little bit more on the pain side. Um, that's where my brain typically goes is, is if it's painful, think lichen planus. If it's itchy, think lichen sclerosis. That doesn't hold up all the time at all, but that's just a um, an early decision tree aspect, but um, definitely can see both in, in either condition. Absolutely. So just for those PTs out there, if they're getting the referral from your local dermatology, kind of understanding where your treatment approach will be coming based on those different diagnoses and kind of be thinking ahead of time before that patient walks in that more than likely you're going to be going towards one direction or the other based on the diagnosis. Right, right, exactly. And then what are, yeah, the common treatments from a dermatology standpoint for this condition? So definitely uh, our, our first line, again, obviously is going to be the topical steroids, um, both externally and intravaginally. And then um, patients do actually respond quite well to injections of intralesional steroids um, if if tolerable. It's never comfortable to have an injection, um, but it can definitely be pretty um, symptom relieving. And that can be really helpful. Um, and like from a PT standpoint, most of these patients that we're going to see, we're going to be doing like that stretching. We're going to be doing tender point release. We're going to be taking them through the dilator training. If they're starting to like, it's a severe case, they're getting that stenosis. We're going to be really wanting to make sure we're stretching near that urethra, that compressor urethra so that they're not getting retention problems and that urethra is not closing up. But a big thing that I note with this condition when I'm treating it is like, you need to be really careful and the amount of pressure that you're eliciting and like really bring yourself back to like school and like understanding as the skin turns white when you're stretching it it's starting to lose its vascularity and you only want to hold that pressure for pro like short periods of time um with dilated training these patients are definitely more at risk for tearing if you progress them too quickly and so you really need to be aware of these other comorbidities going on if a patient comes in with dyspareunia or vaginismus and you're looking at their tissue and it is just not stretching the way normal vaginal mucosa should start really rethinking your treatment process because it will be altered. It's going to be slower and you really need to be careful with this patient population. Absolutely. And I, as I'm sure, you know, it's, I, I also emphasize this to, to my patients because, um, you know, we can do everything we can to get the, the skin Infl inflammation under control. Um, but once your nerves and your muscles and your mind and all of that together has associated this, this pain that comes because of the inflammation from whatever the dermatosis is. But if, if you have inflammation chronically and it leads to pain with urination, leads to pain with sex, it's you're, you're unintentionally having your nerves and your muscles trained to have that pain. Um, and so I try to explain to patients, like, this is why I'm sending you to pelvic floor physical therapy. I'm not seeing anything with the tissue at this point. Your tissue 
looks very um, well controlled. The disease looks actively controlled. Um, but the fact that you're still experiencing pain, I'm not saying it's not real. I'm not saying it's not a hundred percent physiologic condition, but it's, it's no longer the actual skin itself. That's the problem. And we got to work now on your nerves. We got to work on your muscles and the people that are going to be best suited to help you out with that is the pelvic floor team, um, pelvic floor physical therapy team. So um, definitely, definitely a multidisciplinary approach. And I, I, do everything I can to get patients in to see y'all. So awesome. Good. Well, now how about we move along maybe to some of those less or maybe the more chronic lichen um, diagnoses out there? Yeah. So um, lichen simplex chronicus is that secondary condition that can occur after something else has triggered it. So it can be something like you have a yeast infection that leads to itch or you have eczema that leads to itch, or you have lichen sclerosis that leads to itch or whatnot, and your body's naturally itch, rub, whatever. And um, your over time, your body creates this armor against the external rubbing, the external scratching um, to pre- protect itself. It's essentially building up armor against that external source. While doing that, it cr- creates this feedback loop of you have a sym- symptom of it, like you feel the itch, you do the scratch, you do the rub, it feels better. You keep the itch comes back. It just goes in a cycle over and over again. It's called the itch scratch cycle. And, um, a lot of people are not even aware that they're itching or rubbing or scratching or what have you. Um, it can occur at night. It's can be subconscious. Um, so it's definitely not something that I try to, I try to emphasize that it's not anything that you're blaming patients about. It's like, of course, if you have an itch, you're going to scratch it. Like, Duh. But it's it's something that in order to get better, we have to break that cycle. And that can be really, really hard. But I do believe that mind our minds are minds over matter. So we can we can outsmart our nerves. We can outsmart our nervous system and outsmart these these symptoms by using um, techniques like um, distraction techniques and, and other other things to help out with this. Cause without breaking that itch scratch cycle, we're not going to be able to um, decrease the inflammation and decrease that, that drive to itch and decrease the, the armor that your skin has built up. So a few ways that I like to do that, if somebody comes in with lichen simplex chronicus, um, you know, obviously, um, I'll go through the gentle, gentle skincare and gentle, um, uh, vulvar health things that I can, I can talk about in a second, but, um, topical steroids, those controls, um, inflammation, as we know, they're really one of our favorite things in dermatology, but it's because they work. Um, I don't go as high potency topical steroids with lichen simplex chronicus because they usually respond to more of the, um, mid potency and, um, because of where lichen simplex chronicus typically affects, which is more of the labia majora in my experience, rather than the actual um, non-hair bearing uh, parts of the vulva, it does have a little bit more tendency to develop thinning of the skin. Um, the, the hair bearing portions of the vulva is, is more sensitive to that. Um, so I usually go mid potency with that, as well as trying to control the symptoms of itch um, with things like cool washcloth or a, a, you know a cool pack obviously with something in between the actual vulva and, and the coolness, you don't want to put ice on your skin. That would cause lots more problems. Um, but things like that can just help, um, at least. And then as we, as we treat and as we get down to the, the nitty gritty of what's actually driving the itch, um, other dermatoses, things like lichen sclerosis, lichen planus, um, those things can 
arise and we realize, oh, this was what was driving that itch scratch cycle. This is what caused the lichen simplex chronicus to arise. And so once we get down to past that armor, we can figure out how to treat it more specifically. And so the armor, quote unquote, is the lichen simplex chronicus. It usually looks more um, thick, um, more pronounced skin lines. It's often is a little bit um, darker than the rest of the skin around it because of the hyper, hyperpigmentation that can occur in chronic inflammation with the rubbing and scratching. Um, and so it and then it, again, like I said, it tends to affect more of the labia majora rather than the labia minora or the clitoral hood or um, into the introitus or the vagina, the vaginal canal. So um, those are kind of some differentiating things to look at if you're having somebody come in with itch um, to help with determine is this lichen simplex chronicus or is this lichen sclerosis? If it's on the hair bearing portion of the vulva, uh, labia majora and it's thickened and it's darker, it's more likely lichen simplex chronicus. Great. Well, that's a good description to be able to understand kind of the difference between those three major lichen conditions. Yes. All right. So I feel like we've hit that one pretty well. Do we want to maybe jump into maybe some of those common factors that can cause the contact dermatitis of the vulva? Yes. So contact dermatitis is a, a subtype of eczema. So um, I, I try to point that there's a ton of different types of eczema overall. And, and dermatologists, we just get lazy and we call it eczema because if you were to biopsy it and look at, at it under a microscope, it's all going to look like eczema. But there's a lot of different reasons that you can have eczema. Um, some people are essentially born with it. It's intrinsic to their body. And, and, and that's one of the triggers that you can have for actually lichen simplex chronicus, you have atopic dermatitis, um, that leads to itch and get lichen simplex chronicus, or you can have contact dermatitis, which is eczema that results from something physically coming into contact with the skin. Obviously the genitals, the vulva, um, all is much more sensitive than the rest of the skin. Something that you put on your back or your stomach or your arms is going to be a lot less um, prone to developing eczema than uh, your vulva would be. It's like the same thing. Eyelids and lips are very sensitive, much more sensitive than again, your arms, something like that. It's, it's, more prone to eczema for that reason. Um, if you have contact dermatitis, um, there's more than one reason. There's irritant contact dermatitis, which is a type of eczema that occurs because of something into contact with it frequently and uh, chronically that slowly wears away at that normal skin barrier. And that allows for easier irritation and inflammation. On the other hand, there's allergic contact dermatitis. And that's because your body, for whatever reason, has developed this antibiotic antibody against a external source that you specifically are allergic to. You and I might be able to put on something on our skin and, and you might not be allergic to it. And I am allergic to it. On the other hand, there's something that if you and I both put it on our skin over time, it's going to make both of our skin irritated. Um, and so that's kind of the differentiating factor there. So irritant contact dermatitis is much, much, much more common than allergic contact dermatitis. Um, and so a lot of the ways that we treat irritant contact dermatitis comes from the history and um, trying to control external factors that can 
can trigger it. So, you know, I ask a lot, a lot of questions to try to get at this. So how are you washing? What are you washing with? Are you using a loofah? Are you using a scrub? Are you using your hands? How frequently are you washing your vulva? Are you using douches? Are you using wet wipes? Wet wipes are the bane of my existence because they have so many added ingredients in them, fragrance, preservatives, all these emollients, all of these things seemingly help with soothing and all those things, but over time can cause so much irritation to that sensitive vulvar tissue that it causes this irritant contact dermatitis. And so anyone who comes into my clinic, that's going to be one of the first things I say is if you're using a wet wipe, please stop, please stop, please stop. Um, if you enjoy that sensation of the cool um, moistness or whatnot, I say get, you know, a cotton cloth or there's now reusable toilet paper and you can moisten that with water and just dab. And then you don't have the preservatives. You don't have the fragrances. You don't have the, all of the added ingredients into that. Other things that are really common causing irritant contact dermatitis are is, is urine. So um, that really again, brings it back to, this is a whole body, whole person problem. So if you're having irritant contact dermatitis from frequent urinary leakage, why are you having frequent urinary leakage? We know that's not normal. And it's frustrating because a lot of people will say that's normal. As you get older, if you've had pregnancies, if you've had kids, you're going to have more frequent issues with urinary leakage when you cough, sneeze, whatever. And I just am adamant that that is not something that I will stand for. <laughs> we, we know that there's ways that we can treat that. There's ways we can help people um, and decreasing that frequency of urinary um, leakage, whether it be urge or stress incontinence. And, and so it's just really important to not chalk that up as just typical as we age woman problem. No, we get people on, on estrogen for that. We, we get them to the physical pelvic floor, physical therapist. We get them to urologists. We can, we can work on that and get that better to decrease the incidence of irritant contact dermatitis for that. And so with irritant contact dermatitis, it's usually less red and inflammatory. So if you're seeing something where someone, you know, if you have a, a, a client in clinic and, and they're like, oh, I'm irritated there. And it's just a little bit redder than you normally would expect. It's kind of nonspecific red, both on the, the labia mucosa uh, the labia minora and majora, it's it's around the anus too. Those are things that are more likely to be more of that irritant contact dermatitis. First thing is to stop whatever's causing that irritation. Second thing would be um, help repair that barrier. And I typically do that with things like zinc oxide barrier paste um, that doesn't have fragrance in it. And then also um, just plain plain Jane Vaseline. Allergic contact dermatitis, on the other hand, um, is something that people are particularly specifically allergic to themselves. Um, and that tends to be a little bit more of an inflammatory process and a little bit um, redder. You can have vesicles, you can have um, a little bit of a more well-demarcated area of involvement. Um, and the challenging part with this, again, history is really, really important. What are you exposed, exposed to? Things that come into contact, you know, um, but typically this allergy doesn't present for 48 to 72 hours later. The common thought is, well, it can't be my wet wipes or it can't be whatever because I use them every day and, you know, haven't had a change, but it's, it's something that you need to think back to two times ago or two days ago, what you might've come into contact with, you know, um, lubrication or, um, anything can, can really trigger it. Um, and if, if we're suspicious for that, we would, 
do patch testing and patch testing for allergic contact dermatitis is a little bit different than what allergists do or immunologists do for allergies. Um, they do prick testing and, and, and blood tests and things like that. Whereas for allergic contact dermatitis, because of the type of allergy that it is, we put an actual exposure onto you place it on your back, tape it down. There's a bunch of different panels that we can do, a bunch of different ingredients that we can test, including your own personal products. We let it sit on your back. You come back in two days. We look at it, see if there's anything going on then. Send you home, come back in two more days, look at it again, see if there's anything going on. And from that, we're able to see those more delayed reactions, which indicates that allergic component of the allergic contact dermatitis rather than just an irritant contact dermatitis. And then we obviously have you avoid that. And then um, topical steroids and, and, and emollients like plain old Jane Vaseline. I think understanding that delayed onset is really important as well as like understanding the whole wet wipe thing. You're all right. So many people like love their wet wipes. And like, even for my kiddos, I transitioned to just like the water wipes, which still even have like 0.1% of something in it, mm -hmm. you know, but at least it's kind of like the best one out there. Cause even my kiddos would get irritated by just even like the all natural baby wipes that are out there. They still have those perfumes. They still have these preservatives. And so, you know, understanding that and even just being able to use just gentle water and wash rag and just going back to the good old days before we even had wet wipes, you know? Right. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, this is kind of a snarky comment, but I say, you know, natural is not always better. You know, poison ivy is also natural <laughs> and that can be a problem for a lot of people. So, yeah, um, absolutely. And a lot of times two people will try to fix their own problems. So it's, you know, if you have itch or you have pain because of something else, and then you start using, you know, benzocaine or you start using any of the over-the-counter topical numbing agents and stuff like that. And um, because you're trying to help your pain, that's fair. But then if you develop an irritant contact dermatitis or an allergic contact dermatitis, you're just making the problem 10 times worse. So, so a lot of it's just, again, back to the education component of it and, and trying to, you know, explain to patients that this is a team effort and, and we just work together um, to make people feel better just overall. So. No, that's great. I think we, we were able to touch on a lot of information with this podcast. So, you know, <laughs> our lay people, our pelvic PTs, our, you know, maybe in any of our OBGYNs that might listen to this podcast. I hope that we took something away on both, you know, what it looks like, you know, there's help out there um, and the different kind of treatment and multidisciplinary approaches that we have. So Dr. Rutherford, if nothing else, what do you hope listeners take away from this podcast? Uh, again, yeah, definitely. It's multidisciplinary. This is a team effort. It takes a village. Um, so I'm really excited that I got to, to meet you and talk with you. And I'm excited to connect with the other people, you know, the other healthcare providers passionate about this in the Salt Lake area and um, patients just advocate for yourself. Um, find people who care because there's so many people, there's so many providers out there who truly do care and truly do want to help you. Um, so keep advocating for yourself, keep looking for, for those providers and we can help together find solutions. Well, thank you for listening. If you would like to speak with a specialist, please email podcast at mlpt.com. I'd like to thank Dr. Rutherford for coming on the show today. And if listeners want more information or like to get into contact with you, what is the best way to do so? 
So I am at a practice up in Centerville as well as in West Jordan. It's called Dermatology and Aesthetic Center of Utah. You can call our clinic because I am accepting patients. So uh, our number is 801-549-0570. You can also find me on Instagram at Audrey K. Rutherford, MD. And um, healthcare providers, if you want to work with me, get in touch. Again, you can find me on Instagram, call the clinic, or you can email me at AudreyKRutherford at gmail.com. Great. Well, thank you again for listening and tune in next month. Also remember to subscribe to this podcast in order to get the most up-to-date episode information and downloads. Mark your calendars for Mountland Pelvic Health Summit, May 5th and 6th in Park City, Utah. Thank you. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Exercises that are safe and appropriate for some people may not be for you. No treatment program should be undertaken without first consulting your physical therapist or physician. The contents of this podcast is protected under United States copyright laws and may not be reproduced, redistributed, transmitted, displayed, published or broadcast without prior written permission of Mountain Land Physical Therapy.